Hello, my name is Chad Asleo. Thank you for joining me on our fifth and final episode of Season 2, Indigenous Voices of Vancouver Island. If you haven't been listening along to the series, I suggest you should if you have not, you would have noticed a clear theme developing. Whether it was in Episode 1, Indigenous Women in Business, Episode 2, Tradition, Episode 3, Food Sovereignty, or even Episode 4, Building Strong Communities, Over and over again, we have heard a clear commitment to sustainable and ecologically sensitive use of the lands and waterways, responsible treatment of wildlife, and respect at all levels for what the Creator has bestowed upon Indigenous people. Across nations from all areas of Vancouver Island, regardless of age and gender, and from craftspeople to consultants, Environmental stewardship has been identified as a core value and guiding principle in the decisions being made at many levels of business and planning. It makes sense then that this final episode in this series elevates this discussion to being the sole topic. We're going to meet three people who are determined on minimizing the impact on our natural environment and are striving through innovation and or education to find ways for us to leave these lands in a better shape than when we found them. In this episode, we look at environmental stewardship in the indigenous tourism industry on Vancouver Island. I should mention that this podcast series is made possible by 4VI, an organization dedicated to ensuring travel is a force for good on Vancouver Island forever. We also want to acknowledge the contribution of several Indigenous tourism businesses and First Nations who generously shared stories of their business, their heritage, and their future hopes. Our first guest on this episode is Cheyenne Trenholm, who we met in Series 1. Her understanding and commitment to environmental stewardship and that of her company is clearly a core value. My name is Cheyenne Trenholm. I'm from Hamelco First Nation, and I am the assistant GM for Hamelco Wildlife and Cultural Tours in Campbell River. So environmental stewardship is super important to the business as well as the community. They kind of go hand in hand. I'd say that, you know, considering Hamelco First Nation, our land and traditional territory is so vast and it's such a beautiful remote area that we have a responsibility to be stewards of that land, have a say over kind of what happens around the area with everything that we do, even with guardian, like a guardianship program that's hopefully going to be coming on soon for them to, you know, really advocate for beauty and light and our traditional territories. And this ties into protecting our land for future generations. Um, It also connects us to the past, the history of our ancestors. And so when we learn about the land, we're also more inclined to want to protect it. I asked Cheyenne to share with us how traditional stewardship was incorporated into modern practices and building a future in 2023. Traditional ecological knowledge is interwoven into our community just like a cedar tree. And so, like many coastal First Nations, the cedar tree is known as the tree of life. And that's because it provided for us food, clothing, transportation, everything that you could imagine was provided by the cedar tree. And also, um, with its many roots in the ground, it's also connected to the entire surrounding area, other trees, other 
plants. And so like a community, we're all kind of connected that way as well. I would say as well that ecological knowledge is directly related to wellness in all aspects of our day-to-day life, how we interact with it, how we want to preserve it for, again, future generations. And when we're thinking of community development, community economic development, how are we taking into consideration our impacts as a species and you know how our ancestors interacted with the land? How are we upholding that sacred respect to the place that we get to call home? And so when we're, we're thinking about community development, we think back to how are people connected to the land? And so Hamalco means people of the fast-running waters, connected directly to the waters. Um, that's how we moved around. That's how we respected the land. That's how the land respected us. Is there is a mutual, um, I'd say, respect there. If you take from the land, how are you giving back? When you think of place names as wild, a lot of First Nations, their names mean exactly what that location means. Part of environmental stewardship is, of course, looking to the future and sustainability. So our discussions naturally led to what was being done in this area. Indigenous businesses and Indigenous people have a lot of traditional knowledge. And what I mean by traditional knowledge is it's tied into ecological knowledge like we just talked about earlier. It's lessons taught to us by our people, by our ancestors, by the land. We learn everything that we know because of the land. And as a business, thinking about that and how it is, you know, kind of our responsibility to grow in such a way that is sustainable. (laughs) We just talked about it, um, sustainable growth. Um, How are we taking care of our community? How are we taking care of our land? How are we educating visitors? How are we educating surrounding communities? Indigenous businesses have a pretty high platform on how we should be treating the land and we can advocate for many things and reach a lot of people with our platforms through social media, through our marketing through how we are designing our businesses with that Indigenous knowledge kind of interwoven with what we're doing. And so I'd say Indigenous businesses are leaders when it comes to a sustainable future because, yeah, we get to educate people on what it means to be an Indigenous business, what it means to employ Indigenous people or, you know, create partnerships with non-Indigenous people or companies. How can we bridge some gaps so that everybody can kind of be on the same page for good? And for, for example, Hamalco Wildlife and Cultural Tours, we have conservation fees interwoven into all aspects of our business. Um, all of our tours either support whale conservation, bear conservation, or culture conservation, as well as salmon. And so we have all of these fees that visitors get to learn about and they get to kind of understand, you know, how are we contributing to this local economy? How are we contributing to this local business? How are we choosing to spend our money? Because that money is is regenerative. It's 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 in a circular economy when it comes to indigenous businesses. You know, if you spend the money there, it's gonna come right back into the community. So when we think about ecological knowledge and how that relates to indigenous knowledge, they're both very similar in a sense that as Indigenous people, again, I'll bring back the cedar tree. A lot of Indigenous people know the cedar tree as the tree of life. That would almost tie in as well to ecological knowledge in a sense that the cedar provides for us. It takes away bad energy. It cleanses us. And it's just just something we know as Indigenous people, especially on the West Coast here. It's an ancient knowledge as well. And so it's just how are we interacting with the 
the environment around us? How, how can we connect with it? To some, it might seem that inviting people to visit an area where the lands are being stewarded to minimize the impact of mankind is a bit counterintuitive. Cheyenne reiterated that the investment made by tourism was critical in making the management of resources possible and added there were things visitors could do to be aware of the impact of their choices. As visitors to whatever area that you're going to go and visit, have you done the correct research to make sure that the the businesses or areas that you're visiting are actually, you know, taken care of by that local First Nation or the businesses that you're wanting to choose to experience, are they actually 100% Indigenous owned or majority Indigenous owned? Are they actually Indigenous owned? That's a really big um, piece here of Indigenous businesses. And a lot of people are wanting to hop on that bandwagon of indigenizing things. And so how how is it being done in such a way that is respectful to the people, respectful to the area that you're visiting? And is it going directly back into that community or is it um, kind of just a bigger corporation that's trying to take advantage of certain things? So it's kind of, yeah, making sure you're doing your research on making sure that the places that you're visiting kind of align with the values that you're wanting to uphold, whether that be environmental stewardship or reconciliation. Like, how are you ensuring that you're doing your part in choosing with an educational point of view? Because Cheyenne and I are both from the same nation, I thought the perfect way to end her interview would be to have her describe what Homako Wildlife and Cultural Tours offers. Have a listen, and I'm confident that you will feel the pull of the slant. So Homako Wildlife and Cultural Tours, we provide wildlife and cultural tours. We started off 20 years ago with our Great Bears of Butte tour, uh, focusing on grizzly bears in our traditional territory of Butte Inlet in Orford Bay. And... A really great thing about Butte Inlet is that when you're traveling from Campbell River through the islands and you get to the mouth of that inlet, it's the grandest fjord in BC for one thing. And so the mountains are crazy high and it's just, it's it's amazing. The, the trees are very green, but the water, when you're getting into Butte Inlet, the water goes from like a dark blue to a, a very bright turquoise color. And so we call that Butte Blue because of how bright that is and the reason it's so vivid is due to the glacier waters that feed into that inlet and so yeah when you're traveling up Butte Inlet you just get this crazy crazy blue color and it really sticks with you. Yeah so all of our traditional territory lays around this area. We have other tours that also take place here. Our People Water Land tour takes place at the mouth of Butte Inlet at the last village site of Hamelka First Nation known as Ope or Church House. And so this place, uh, there's a cove with some remains of a few houses that were left there in the 1980s. And when you arrive there, you can feel the presence of where you're at. It's also very quiet. There's birds chirping, and then there's sea lions going by or whales. Yeah, it's just a very kind of spiritual place to be. And so this is where one of our tourists takes place, and there's trails throughout Church House that visitors can go and visit with a with a Hamelco guide as you get off of one of our boats. So that's the Puerto Land tour. And then another tour that we have is our Sailor Sea Whale Watching Tour. This is uh, focused mostly on marine mammals and some cultural knowledge woven into there as well. But, you know, you get to go see breaching humpbacks, orcas, 
sea lions and seabirds, eagles, bald eagles flying everywhere, and just kind of cruising through the islands, feeling that cold, crisp air on your face and really experiencing our traditional territory firsthand. It is every bit as breathtaking as Cheyenne says, and then some. From this conversation, I segued into one with a counselor from Sunaymukh First Nation to hear the role stewardship plays in their policies. Uh, my name is Erilyn Joseph Hanquithia. I come from Sanewa First Nation. And currently I work as the executive advisor to Chief Mike Wise, as well as uh, elected counselor for Sanewa First Nation. Sanewa people have had a long, enduring relationship to our land, our resources, our waters, the air, and the entire planet. So we have a very spiritual relationship with all of that, a very cultural relationship that informs our laws and social orders in a significant way. Our goal is to maintain that connection forever and always, now and into the future, until the end of time that started from the beginning of time. The word stewarding has a lot of meanings to a lot of people in government and industry, but to Sinema First Nation, it's continuing on the way of life that our ancestors have passed down to us through generations. Maintaining the ecological respect of the water, of our rivers, of our forests, of our land, uh, how we relate to that, and our spirituality emanates from all of that and determines how we're supposed to act as people. So when we deal with projects, whether it be resource projects, government projects, trade projects, whatever the project is coming into our territory, we always use that as an analytical framework to review various activities in our territory. Sustainability is one of the goals of environmental stewardship. And I specifically asked about how that was being addressed. For us, it's ensuring our rights to fisheries as formerly. And December 23rd, 1854, our forefathers and our foregrandmothers entered into the treaty with the Crown on December 23rd of 1854. And part of that is to ensure our fisheries as formerly. So that means not only allowing us the act of going fishing, it also includes the authority to manage and govern fisheries in our territory. Who comes into our villages, who harvests the fisheries, and how that is to take place. Also, hunting. Part of our treaty relationship with Canada and British Columbia and the country is hunting as formerly ensuring the preservation of fisheries and hunting is important to us, ensuring the the value of the water and that it is not destroyed in an extreme way. How we preserve the forests, you know, we have, we own a lot of forest land, timber land, thousands of hectares. We want to sustain that for future generations, which means not logging everything and anything, but preserving 
areas of our timberland that are culturally important to us, but also contribute to the wildlife and the animals uh, so we can continue on that spiritual relationship with the deer, with the elk, with the sheep, with uh, the cougar, all kinds of animals. The name of people have been harvesting and using as part of our spiritual way of life in addition to sustenance. The quality of the air. Our Sinema people have gone through many pandemics. COVID is probably the last one at the bottom of the list that we've gone through. We've gone through smallpox. We've gone through tuberculosis. We've gone through so many effects, environmental health effects onto our people. So sustaining all of those things in a good way and balancing our economic development and how we fiscally be responsible and build our nation in a fiscally responsible way is also very important. We want to move beyond the Indian Act and that requires an economy to be able to sustain ourselves, to be able to improve the quality of life, to, to cover, to improve the quality of life in education and housing, access to housing, access to health, right? So we can do that ourselves as we have done prior to the arrival of the Crown. On a nation level, our goal in stewardship is to occupy the field. We want to govern our territory according to our traditional laws and spirituality and way of life. We want to implement our treaty promises. So that means being able to decide what happens in our territory, to be able to decide what goes on and doesn't go on. You know, our people have been literally boxed out of economic and development and nationhood for over 170 years. And it's only now in the last couple of decades where we are starting to return to those treaty commitments through reconciliation, recognition, respect, having Snanemoch at the table, including redress. So to be able to make decisions in our territory for the best interest of our people is significant stewardship. But also, like you say, at the grassroots, on the ground, our people are out there on our waters, on our land, in our forests, harvesting and gathering, maintaining that spiritual connection. Our last guest is not Indigenous, but her knowledge and relationship with the peoples and lands of Vancouver Island gives us a perspective of the importance and type of stewardship that is taking place. So my name is Julian Hawkengrant. I was born up in Smithers and moved down to Vancouver Island when I was 14 years old. I live in Parksville now, kind of since that time. And I've been working kind of up and down the island, but most significantly over on the west coast of Vancouver Island in Tlaoquit traditional territory. My company is called Allied Certifications, and it was really kind of born out of a project that emerged from my master's thesis, working with the Tlaoquit First Nation, learning about the history of the tribal parks there, um, sort of indigenous stewardship uh, vision and efforts to have a stronger presence in the really strong tourism industry that exists there and educate people who are visiting Tlaoquit territory about where they are and how they can contribute to a more equitable tourism industry. Since 2018, I've been working with the Tlaoquit First Nation on the west coast of Vancouver Island around Tofino, which is a really famous, popular tourism destination that kind of 
got its name and became known to the world because of the direct action sort of anti-clear-cut logging campaigns that happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, so-called War on the Woods. And what a lot of people don't know is that the reason those environmental that environmental movement was so successful was because the Tlaoquit First Nation, alongside the direct action blockades they were doing to try to prevent clear-cut logging, also took the province to court and the logging companies to court and successfully won an injunction against logging on Wanachos Hilthuis, uh, Mears Island. So a lot of people know about the war on the woods and they know about it as a, success, a, a real successful achievement for the environmental movement, but they don't know that the reason it was successful is because of underlying indigenous rights and title and because the community, the Tlokwit people, as well as their neighbors, the Ahauzit and other New Channel peoples, they fought really hard to protect those forests and to uphold a really ancient traditional lineage of stewardship of these forests. And to this day, they remain the largest intact tract of old growth rainforest left on Vancouver Island. I was eager to hear Julian's view on how the traditional ecological knowledge is interwoven into community development. One of the really interesting outcomes of the Clackwood protests and the campaigns to protect old growth forests in the 1980s and 90s was a shift from a primary industry-based economy, local economy in Tofino, fishing and logging mostly, towards tourism. And kind of since that time, the Clackwood protests and all of these, all of the media of trying to prevent the logging brought a lot of attention and brought a lot of visitors. And even the people who were out there at the front lines participating in these these protests ended up falling in love with the place. So it attracted a lot of attention to Tofino. Fast forward 35 years to present day, there's a $400 million a year tourism industry in Tofino within the territory of the Tlokwit First Nation, which they don't really participate equitably in. They're not really seeing a lot of the benefits from tourism and they are experiencing a disproportionate amount of the impacts resulting from tourism. While they have a thriving economy there, there's a big equity issue. And the Tlokwit Tribal Parks Guardian Stewardship Program is mostly concerned with, I would describe their traditional responsibility as upholding the Tlokwit Hotway, the hereditary chief's um, responsibility to care for the traditional territory and all the beings, the life forces that comprise the ecology there, the ecosystem. But to put it into more contemporary terms, I guess I would say they have two responsibilities, which are one, to educate people, make sure that they know where they are when they come to Tofino. Right now, I I would expect that the majority of visitors who, who visit Tofino, they don't know that they're coming to the Tlokwit tribal parks before they get there. I think more and more are learning about it as, you know, when they are there. But a lot of people are ignorant of this history. It's been a while since the Clackwood protests and, and, and visitors aren't really aware of the work that Tlokwit is doing to continue protecting these systems. I'll just reiterate once again that I'm not a member of Tlokwit and although I've worked really closely with that community for a few years, I can't really speak for them, but I, I will give you my view, which is that when, when Tlokwit folks are talking about sustainability, they're not talking about this narrow view of 
environmental sustainability that all of us kind of sometimes end up getting pigeonholed into talking about mitigating waste and mitigating carbon emissions. When Oakwood folks are talking about sustainability, they're talking about being able to continue practicing their way of life long into the future. And that means protecting species that are integral to the Tlokwit way of life. Giant cedars are really important to Tlokwit people. They've for hundreds of years been really famous up and down the coast as canoe carvers. And to carve a really big dugout canoe that a whole team of paddlers can use, you need a really large ancient cedar tree with straight grain. And in a lot of New Channel folks' territories up and down the island, you don't get that kind of wood anymore. Tlokwit still has a lot of it. And because of the strong position that their people took a generation ago, young Tlokwit are learning this really amazing traditional practice and technology. Another important element of what is sustainability for Tlokwit is for Tlokwit membership to be supportive of tourism, they need to see a benefit from it. And there's really not not a lot of Tlokwit people are getting meaningful employment in tourism beyond sort of service level jobs. And there's not a lot of evidence for community to see how the $400 million tourism industry, all that wealth is generated from tourism, how is it reinvested back into their community? So I'd like to take this opportunity now to introduce the project that brought me into this community, which is the Tlokwit Tribal Park Allies Program. And this is a totally innovative program. We're not aware of it existing anywhere else. On behalf of Tlokwit, I've been working with their lands manager, who's the head of the Tribal Park Guardian Program, to launch this and grow this Tribal Park Allies Program. In 2019, we invited tourism businesses in Tofino to voluntarily get certified as a Tribal Parks Ally, where they get the right to display a logo, and they agree to meet some standards and try and and walk with us towards figuring out a way that their business and the First Nation can have a better relationship. So some of the things that we ask businesses to do are to collect a 1% fee, adding it on top of the cost of a room, for example. So if you're paying $200 for a hotel room, those that hotel is going to put a $2 surcharge on your night at the hotel, and that money gets remitted to the First Nation. Since we started the program, we've got a little bit over 125 businesses participating now. And while I haven't seen the numbers from this summer, last year we were projecting that at some point this season, we are going to have raised a million dollars since the launch of the program. And that kind of money can be really transformative to community members' relationship with tourism as an industry, and also the actual investment in indigenous priorities in their community so that they can see that tourism can be a benefit to them and can be equitable. I feel like Tribal Park Allies is one step on a long road, you know. As I have with most guests, I asked about the future of Vancouver Island, tourism, and Indigenous people. We are living in a very interesting time right now. I think when you look at things in the Indigenous perspective, a lot has happened in a short amount of time in their history. There's been the with the settlement of European folks and the establishment of British Columbia and Canada, there is this period of major disruption in what had up to that point been a pretty stable, continuous time. 
And we're, we're living in this moment in British Columbia where the province is really taking very seriously the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. And all of these indigenous rights are being talked about and integrated into laws here in British Columbia. But I believe this is another weird gap in primary industries like logging and in mining and uh, aquaculture. It's been customary for a long time to provide a benefit for companies to provide a benefit to the nations whose lands and resources they are extracting or developing. That culture doesn't exist in the tourism economy, in the tourism industry. And I think that really needs to change because while the, while the impacts are less extreme and less obvious uh, from an ecological, environmental perspective, indigenous people bear a lot of impacts that settlers don't really even consider because we just don't know these lands and waters and as as well i do i think it's really important and i think it's going to be it's going to happen it's going to happen across the province there's going to have to be a benefit a direct economic benefit for first nations from tourism and it's totally up to nations how they want to use that those benefits but i know that it'll be invested well to protect people and to protect the lands and waters that their culture is deeply connected to I don't think a lot of these folks really can see a future for themselves without access to those important species and those important places. That warning also signals the end to this, the fifth episode in season two of Indigenous Voices of Vancouver Island. If you missed any of the other episodes or season one, I encourage you to listen to them wherever you get your podcasts. It has been my pleasure and privilege to guide you through the insights given on these important topics. Topics that impact the type of tourism that is offered on Vancouver Island and determines the range of experience tourists will have when they arrive. I invite you to visit my beautiful, breathtaking home to see firsthand what Indigenous people from North to South, East to West are so proud and determined to steward for the benefit of future generations. Learn about our traditions, sample our cuisine, view our art and innovations, and take with you memories to last a lifetime. I believe the word used by one of our guests was transformative. I wish this powerful experience for you. On behalf of 4VI, who made all of these discussions possible, I thank all of our participants for sharing their insights and wisdom, and I thank you, the listener, for your interest. I'm Chad Asleo. Thank you for listening, and in my language, I would like to say thank you. Emut.